Good morning. Hope I wasn't too loud there. <laughs> so today I am going to talk to you about Charles Spurgeon, and I've really enjoyed studying his life and really learning from him. And the Lord has taught me a lot through his life. Days after the death of Carrie in India, a small baby boy was born in a cottage in Kelvedon, England, on January 9, June nineteenth, eighteen thirty-four. seemed like a likely candidate to be used in a great way. He was born out in the country of Essex. Had a plan for him. This small boy preached to thousands, write 135 books, start an orphanage in pastor's college, stand up for the truth when it was being attacked, preach, to so, preach so many sermons that the amount of content would exceed that of the Encyclopedia Britannica and would be a godly husband and father. Now you all know who I'm talking about, so... It, no use going on in that. So this man was Charles Spurgeon, of course. So as I said, on June 19th, 1834, Charles Spurgeon was born in Kelvedon, Essex, to John and, I'm not sure his mom's name actually, but John Spurgeon, who was an independent minister and itinerant preacher. Charles was the eldest in his family. His mom had 16 children, eight of whom died. When he was 18 months old, Charles went to live with his grandfather in Stanbourne, in, in Stanbourne, Essex. Why he moved away, we, we're not exactly sure, but most likely it was due to financial issues and lack of proper housing with his family. Charles lived with, with, lived with his grandpa until he was the age of six. During that time, his aunt taught him how to read, and he first began to read Puritan books. At first, he was very... At first, he was very intrigued by just the ornate covers of the books and was very just awed by them. But soon after he began to read, he was very taken with the content of the books. And at an early age, he was already understanding and reading many Puritan books. His favorite being Pilgrim's Progress, which he would read a hundred times before his death. Between his grandfather and his father, Charles Spurgeon was able to see what it was like to be in the ministry and be a gospel minister. Charles' father was very evangelistically minded and was very strong in that area. So Charles was able to see that clearly. At the age of six, he returned to live with his parents in Colchester. When he returned home, he found another brother and two sisters, whom he quickly took the charge of. Mrs. Spurgeon was very involved in raising Spurgeon and was really influential in his life. Spurgeon said of her, I have not the powers of speech to set forth my valuation of the choice blessing which the Lord bestowed on me in making me the son of one who prayed for me and prayed with me. How can I ever forget when she bowed her knee, bowed her knee and with her arms about my neck prayed, Oh, that my son might live before thee. On Sunday, instead of going to the evening service, she would stay home with them and lead them in family worship, walking verse by verse through the Bible, and she would pray with them at the end. Charles' father felt guilty for neglecting his family because of his itinerant teaching ministry. However, when he went home one evening, he heard her leading his family and thought they were in good enough hands, so he went back to preach. <laughs> While young Spurgeon was growing up, oh, and that's a picture of his grandfather, James Spurgeon. While he was growing up, there were a few other notable figures in history who were coming onto the scene. You had Alfred Tennyson, who was first beginning to write his poems. Charles Dickens was a shorthand parliamentary writer. And Charles Darwin 
was formulating his theory of evolution. Despite growing up in a Christian home, however, Charles Spurgeon didn't really have a saving knowledge of Christ, and he knew it. He had a keen sense of God's justice and realized that there could be no forgiveness of sin without a fitting payment. Oftentimes, he would feel that God would be perfectly just in saving the whole world and condemning himself to hell. Spurgeon wrote in remembering these times, Let none despise the stirrings of the spirit in the hearts of the young. Let not boyish anxieties and juvenile repentances be lightly regarded. I at least can bear testimony to the fact that grace operates on some minds at a period almost too early for, too early for recollection. But when young in years, I felt much sorrow for sin. Day and night, God's hand was heavy upon me. I slept at night. I dreamed of the bottomless pit. And when I awoke, I seemed to feel the misery I had dreamed. Up to God's house I went. My song was but a sigh. To my chamber I retired. And there, with tears and groans, I offered up my prayer with a hope and without a refuge. For God's law was flogging me with its two-thonged whip. And then me with brine afterwards, so that I did shake and quiver with pain and anguish. It was my sad lot to feel the greatness of my sin without a discovery of the greatness of God's mercy. I had to walk through this world with more than a world upon my shoulders, and I wonder to this day how it was that my hand was kept from rending my own body in pieces. I used to say, if God does not send me to hell, he ought to do it. I sat in judgment upon myself and pronounced the sentence that I felt would be just. I could not have gone to heaven without my sin unpardoned, even if I had the offer to do it, for I justified God in my own conscience while I condemned myself. He goes on to say, When I was in the hands of the Holy Spirit under conviction of sin, I had a clear and sharp sense of the justice of God. Sin, whatever it might be to other people, became to me an intolerable burden. It was not so much that I feared hell as that I feared sin. And all the while, I had upon my mind a deep concern for the honor of God's name and the integrity of his moral government. I felt that it would not satisfy my conscience if I could be forgiven unjustly. This torture that Charles went through endured for five years from the age of 10 to 15. He didn't tell a single person what he was going through, but lived in a way a double life, not letting his parents know his struggles. On a cold, frigid Sunday on January 6th, 1850, when Charles was 15, he was on his way to church in Colchester. On his way, he was caught in a a horrible snowstorm, which forced him to take refuge in a primitive Methodist church. The church was nearly deserted with only a dozen people inside. Even the pastor was unable to come due to the snowstorm. Reluctantly, a lay pastor stood up to preach on Isaiah 45, 22. I will let Spurgeon describe it himself, as he was the one actually there. Blessed be God for that poor local preacher. He read his text. It was as much as he could do. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He was an ignorant man. He could not say much. He was obliged to keep to his text. Thank God for that. He began, Look, that is not hard work. You need not lift your hand. You do not want to lift your finger. Look, a fool can do it. It does not need a wise man to look. A child can do that. It don't need to be full grown to use your eyes. And that was the way he talked. It wasn't my missing up grammatical errors. Look, a poor man may do that. No need of riches to look. Look how simple. Then he went on. Look unto me. 
Do not look to yourselves, but look to me, that is Christ. Do not look God the Father, whether you are elected or not. You shall find that out afterwards. Look to me. Look to Christ. Do not look to God the Holy Spirit to know whether he has called you or not. That you shall discover by and by. Look to Jesus Christ. And then he went on to put it in his simple way thus. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood for you. Look unto me. I am scourged and spit upon. I am nailed to the cross. I die. I am buried. I rise and descend. I am pleading before the Father's throne. And all of this for you. Now that simple way of putting the gospel had enlisted my attention, and a ray of light had poured into my heart. Stooping down, he looked under the gallery and said, Young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> and indeed I was, but I wasn't accustomed to be addressed in such a way. Ah, and he, said he, and you will always be miserable if you don't do as my text tells you. And that is, look to Christ. And then he called out with all his might, Young man! Look! Look to Christ! And look now! Look! 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 And live! You have nothing to do but look and live. I did look. Blessed be God. I know I looked then and there, and he who but that minute ago had been near despair had the fullness of joy and hope. The cloud was gone, the darkness rolled over, and in that moment I saw the sun. I had been waiting to do fifty things, but when I heard the word look, I could almost have looked my eyes away. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith that looks alone to him. I thought I could dance all the way home. I could understand what John Bunyan meant when he said he would tell the crows in the pastures that what he had experienced. Between half past ten when I entered that chapel and half past twelve when I returned home, what a change had taken place in me. The gospel had hit its intended target, and from this point on, Charles Spurgeon was a different man. And there's the church that Charles Spurgeon was converted at. And there is a plaque inside which says, near this spot, on January 6, 1850, Pastor C.H. Spurgeon found peace through Christ. A few months later, Charles Spurgeon was baptized and soon became a Sunday school teacher and soon became a Sunday school teacher at a small church, teaching boys from nine, ages 9 to 11. This helped him to learn how to hold people's attention, and he was eager to tell others about his newfound peace in Christ. Often on Sundays, he would go door-to-door, passing out 70 tracts on, on Saturday afternoon. Spurgeon longed to be a pastor, and in a letter to his father, he wrote, How I long for the time when it may please God to make me, like you, my father, a successful preacher of the gospel. Oh, that I might see one sinner constrained to come to Jesus. He joined the Lay Preachers Association in Cambridge, led by Mr. James Venter. One Saturday, Charles was almost tricked into preaching his first sermon. Mr. Venter sent him and another man to go preach at a small cottage in Teversham, which was about four miles away. Along the way, Spurgeon told the other young man that he was praying for him and hoped for God's blessing on his sermon. The other young man, shocked by his statement, said, I'm not, I'm not preaching the sermon, and he had no intention of doing so. Both were perplexed, and his companion suggested that Spurgeon give one of his Sunday school messages. The message was given to a few farmers and their wives on 1 Peter 2, 7. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. His preaching ability was immediately noticed, and he was soon taking appointments throughout the countryside, preaching in small cottages and churches. 
He was soon pastoring his first church at the age of 16 <laughs> and at Water Beach Chapel. During the two years that Spurgeon was there, the church grew from 40 members to 100 members. There is Taversham Cottage, which was where he first preached, and Water Beach Chapel. During that, t- that time, he decided he wanted to go and get a seminary education. So he made an appointment with, with Dr. Joseph Angus, who was the principal of Stepney College. However, when he went to the appointment, a maid showed him into a small parlor and told him to wait there. He waited for two hours, feeling the insignif- his own significance as, and not wanting to impose on anyone else. He did not ring the bell to ask what was the matter. Dr. Joseph Angus, who was going to London, had to go to... Go to catch a train, so he missed the appointment with Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon took this as a message from the Lord that he was to pursue the ministry without any seminary education and pursued it that way. In the summer of 1853, he was one of the speakers at the annual meeting of the Cambridge Sunday School Union. There, two of the older pastors ridiculed him and insulted him for his youth. The way he responded had caught the attention of Thomas Olney, a deacon of the New Park Street Chapel. Thomas Olney was urged by a friend to invite Spurgeon to come and preach at his church. Thomas Olney wrote, letter, uh, wrote a letter to Spurgeon inviting him to come. Spurgeon, however, thought that the letter was not meant for him and wrote back saying, I would be glad to preach, but I'm sure you got the wrong person. Thomas Olney confirmed that the letter was for him and arranged for Charles to come and preach on December 18, 1853. The New Park Street Chapel was blessed with many men in the past as their pastors. They had John Gill, Benjamin Keach, who was a writer of the 1689 Baptist Confession, and John Rippon, who wrote How Firm a Foundation. Spurgeon had a lot to live up to when he came and preached there. On the Saturday of December 17th, Spurgeon came to London and spent the night in the boarding house. The next day, he preached at the, at the, at the church. The church that could hold 1,200 people was only filled with 80 people. However, Spurgeon impressed the people, and by the, next, by the evening service, 160 people were there due to word of mouth. After these first sermons, Spurgeon came back and preached three more times in January of 1854. At the end of it, the people were so pleased with him that they urged him, the, their deacons, to make sure that he stayed there and would not let him leave until he made an arrangement with them. He decided he would come for a trial of six months. However, halfway through that time, the people wanted him for sure and pressed him to become their pastor. He accepted their generous offer but said, Remember my youth and inexperience and pray that these may not hinder my usefulness. I trust also the remembrance of these will lead you to forgive mistakes I may make or unguarded words that I may utter. Spurgeon was only 19 years old when he took on the pastorship of the New Park Street Church. And I'm not sure if that's the picture of him when he was first there, but there's a picture of Spurgeon in the new Park Street Church preaching. Although he was a great preacher, he was also a great pastor. He shepherded his flock with the love of Christ. When an epidemic of the Asiatic cholera came to his part of the city, he would visit family after family, praying for them and comforting them in the Lord. Within a year of Spurgeon's ministry, starting in New Park Street Church, he moved to Exeter Hall, which could hold 4,500 people. On the very first Sunday, 
It was crowded and completely filled. In 1856, Charles Spurgeon was married to Susanna Thompson. This was a tie of love, but it was also a spiritual partnership. Their goals were intertwined, and they both had the same passions. After the birth of their twin sons in September of 1856, Susanna became a semi-invalid for the rest of her life. She still, however, worked continuously behind the scenes. She would help him by visiting the congregation, writing sermons for him. No. (laughs) Sorry. Visiting the congregation, writing letters for him, (laughs) interviewing female baptism candidates, and keeping the house running. She also began her book fund, which started with five shillings. Within, by the end of her lifetime, she had raised several thousand pounds and distributed 200,000 books to needy pastors and missionaries. Charles Spurgeon wrote to her during the downgrade controversy, You are as an angel of God to me, bravest of women, strong in the faith. You have ministered unto me. God bless thee out of the seventh heaven. It is definitely true that behind the great man of God, Charles Spurgeon, was an equally great woman of God. However, all was not smooth sailing and popularity with Charles Spurgeon. He received much criticism, and there's he and his wife. He received much criticism from the press and other secular institutions. One Sheffield paper wrote, Just now the great lion, star, meteor, or whatever else he may be called, of the Baptists is the Reverend Mr. Spurgeon, minister of the Park Street Chapel, Southwark. He has been created a perfect furor in the religious world. Every Sunday, crowds throng to Exeter Hall as to some great dramatic entertainment. The huge hall is crowded to overflowing with an excited auditory, whose good fortune in obtaining a mission is often envied, envied by the hundreds outside who throng the closed doors. Mr. Spurgeon preaches himself. He is nothing unless he is an actor, unless exhibiting that great, that matchless impudence, which is his great characteristic, indulging in coarse familiarity with the holy things, declaiming in a ranting and colloquial style, strutting up and down the platform as though he were at the Surrey Theater and boasting of his own intimacy with heaven with nauseating frequency. It would seem that the poor young man's brain is turned by the notoriety he has acquired and the incense offered at his shrine. He is a nine days wonder, a comment that has suddenly shot across the religious atmosphere. He has gone up like a rocket and ere long will come down like a stick. Spurgeon knew such things were being said of him, but he refused to offer them even a word in reply. In 1856, the church continued to grow and was forced to move to the Surrey Theater. Pictures of Spurgeon throughout his life and Spurgeon's 12,000-volume library, which he knew so well he could find any book he was looking for and find the exact page he wanted to find in the content. His memory was incredible. The Surrey Theater could hold 12,000 people. On October 19th, the opening service, 12,000 people were inside, with 10,000 others waiting outside for seating. Unfortunately, someone called out, Fire! and caused a stampede, which killed several people and injured many others. Spurgeon had a strong desire to raise up ministry, men for the ministry. He realized there was a need, so he started his pastor's college, in 1856. The college focused on teaching the students the true gospel and how to proclaim it, as well as sound doctrine. One of the most valuable things the students experienced was every Friday afternoon, they would hear from Charles Spurgeon from, about his preaching style and his own 
ministry. On Sunday and Thursday, they would hear him in the pulpit preaching. Spurgeon's own method of preaching was unique. All week long, he would immerse himself in books and God's word. He, he really believed in preparing himself rather than his sermon, and would often read six books a week. These were, no, these were Puritan books that were very dense and heavy. Come Saturday evening, he would shut himself into his study and decide on his sermon text. He would then come up with a scanty outline, which he would walk into the pulpit with the next day. One time, he was trying to come up with a sermon for the text, Thy people shall come, shall be willing in the day of thy power. However, after hours and hours of working, he was unable to come up with any sort of outline. His wife finally told him to go to bed, and the next morning she would wake him up to prepare before the church service. Spurgeon agreed and went to bed. No sooner had he begun to go to sleep when he started preaching while he was sleeping. He preached on the exact text he had been preparing, so his wife quickly grabbed a pen and paper and wrote out the outline and main key points. The next morning, he woke up, and she told him what he had preached on and his main key points. He took her outline and went and preached his sermon. The number of students rose steadily in the college, and by the end of Spurgeon's life, he had seen nearly 100,000 men raised to proclaim the gospel. After the Indian Mutiny in 1857, Spurgeon was asked to preach at the Day of Humiliation in the Crystal Palace. The Crystal Palace was a huge building, as you can see there, and a couple of days before, Spurgeon went to test the acoustics. After he had positioned several men throughout the hall, he then yelled out with a with his voice, which was amazing. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. A painter who was high up in one of the galleries heard the words and thought it was a voice from heaven. <laughs> Troubled and intrigued by these words, he went home and would not rest until he had learned about the Lamb of God. We see here the power of the Word of God in saving sinners, even when there was no accompanying exposition or anything. In 1859... Spurgeon preached to a crowd of 23,000 people that day, and every single one of them could hear him, without microphones or any other sort of sound equipment. In 1859, the foundation stone of their church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, was laid. The church cost them 45,000 pounds, and they did it debt-free. This new church was able to hold 5,000 people, and the acoustics were excellent. Once a month, Spurgeon would ask that the members would not attend so that the unconverted might hear the gospel. Many great events were held at the tabernacle. On one event, they celebrated the Spurgeon's wedding anniversary. As a love offering, they gave him 6,500 pounds, most of which, however, he gave away to different almshouses connected with their church. At a later event, they contributed another 4,500 pounds, but said that more would have been given had they not realized that he would have just given it all away. <laughs> Spurgeon felt that his church should have been more active and involved in the sharing of the gospel and of doing benevolent works. So he brought it before the church in a prayer meeting and made it a matter of prayer. Within a couple of weeks, a widow of a clergyman came to him and said she had a fortune of 20,000 pounds that she wished to use for God's kingdom. She said also that she had a heart for orphanages. Spurgeon suggested that she ask Mr. Mueller of Bristol, for help since he had an experience and 
he was used to dealing with orphanages. However, she was insistent that she wanted him to be the one to over, overview and supervise the work. Spurgeon took this as a direct answer to prayer and presented the idea to his church. The church heartily jumped on board and funds came flowing in. By 1869, the boys' section of the orphanage was finished debt-free. The way they arranged it would be that they would have different homes inside the orphanage, and each home would have a mother figure inside. Each night, they would have family worship, and then they would have school throughout the day. Besides the orphanage, the church had many other ministries that they were involved in. They had 49 mission Bible schools, a Christian Brothers Benefit Society, the Evangelistics, uh, Evangelists Association and Country Mission, the Flower Mission, not really sure what that is, the Gospel Temperance Society, the Ladies Benevolence Society, the Ladies Maternal Society, the Tract Society, the Poor Minister's Clothing Society, the Ragged Schools, the Pioneer Mission, the Lay Preachers, and a few more. He also started the Cold Portage Association, which the goal in there was to provide Bibles and other Puritan and evangelical books to country men and boys at a cheap and low cost. The last event that we come to, the last major event in Spurgeon's life, was the downgrade controversy. This was a controversy that took a while to develop, but what happened was Spurgeon heard of rumors of different men who were preaching unsound doctrine and who were attacking some key principles of the faith. Of these, there was the divine inspiration of scripture, the virgin birth, the substitutionary work of Christ, and the reality of heaven and hell. Many wrote to Spurgeon pleading that he would confront the tide of modernism that was flowing into the church. He issued a few, he issued a few um, articles in his Sword in the Trowel magazine about the downgrade, about how sound, unsound doctrine and truth that was, things that were against the biblical truth could gain a foothold in the church. He said, the atonement is rejected. Inspiration of scripture is derided. The Holy Spirit is degraded into an influence. The punishment of sin is turned into a fiction and the resurrection into a myth. And yet these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brethren and maintain a confederacy with them. Spurgeon urged that the Baptist Union should make a clear doctrinal statement of what they believed and then act upon it. If the people agreed with the statement, they could stay in the Union, else they would have to leave. However, the Baptist Union would not do such a thing and continued to waffle on the issues. Eventually, they would make a statement, but it was so general that it didn't condemn any of the false teachings. After months and months of Spurgeon trying to convince them to take some steps against the ministers who were attacking biblical truth, he eventually resigned, realizing that no headway was being gained. In the meeting of April 1888, the Baptist Union censured him. The Spurgeon, to Spurgeon, the crux of the matter was this. Believers in Christ's atonement are now in declared union with those who make light of it. Believers in Holy Scripture are in confederacy with those who deny plenary inspiration. Those who hold evangelical doctrine are in open, open alliance with those who call the fall a fable, who deny the personality of the Holy Ghost, who call justification by faith immoral, and hold that there is another probation after death. Yes, we have before us the wretched spectacle of professedly orthodox Christians publicly avowing their union 
with those who deny the faith and scarcely concealing their contempt for those who cannot be guilty of such gross disloyalty to Christ. To be plain, we are unable to call these things Christian unions. They begin to look like evil confederacies in evil. It is our solemn conviction that where there can be no real spiritual communion, there should be no pretense of fellowship. Fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. However, Spurgeon had inner consolation and peace. He knew that his beloved master had been attacked and vilified in the self-same way, and he took refuge in him. Spurgeon never was able to after this. People asked that he would bring forth evidence against the ministers he had accused. Spurgeon had evidence through letters that he had written with the secretary of the Baptist Union, Dr. Booth. However, Dr. Booth would not allow him to bring these, uh, these letters to the public as evidence and said they were confidential. Due to the stress from this controversy, Spurgeon's health declined. He moved to South France to regain strength. He would preach his last sermon at the tabernacle on June 7, 1891. He withdrew to preach. He withdrew to the French Riviera, where he died in 1892. The Prince of Preachers was only 57 years old. There were six total funerals for him, one in France and one on February 10th for the, ministers, for, the, for the members of the tabernacle, one for the ministers and students, one for Christian workers, and still another for the general public. 60,000 people paid their respects to Charles Spurgeon, the last and final service was held the following day. The funeral procession was two miles long with 100,000 people crowding, to, uh, crowding the streets. Atop his coffin, the Bible was opened to Isaiah 45:22. Even in his death, Spurgeon was pointing others to Christ. So I would like to conclude this talk with a few lessons that I learned uh, from the life of Charles Spurgeon I'd like to share with you. First, Spurgeon did not rely on the faith of his parents. He made sure that his calling and election were sure. Even though he had grown up in a Christian home, he did not let that soothe his mind into a state of laxity. He did not rest on the faith of his parents. Instead, he pursued salvation until he had found it by God's grace. It is so easy for us in the Christian home to, as we're raised up, we know everything that we're supposed to do, all the right words to say, but yet not really have a saving knowledge of Christ. Spurgeon did not allow himself to be soothed by his knowledge of Scripture. He pursued Christ until he had found him. In Isaiah 55, 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call him upon him while he is near. There's a time when God may not be near. There may be a time when we are dead and we can no longer call out for help and salvation. We don't know what a day or a week may hold for us, and we need to make sure that we are truly resting in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. Two, we see that we are not to despise the seemingly small things of life. In two different examples in Spurgeon's life, we see this. First, we see how his Aunt Anne was faithful in teaching him how to read, which was ultimately what helped him to read the Puritans and get his theological foundation laid while he was young. In the same way, also, the preacher who was at the 
Methodist church, if he had decided that there were only 12 people at the church that day and wasn't worth preaching to, he would have missed the chance to be able to be used by God to save a great warrior for Christ. Never let those small tasks get by you without the oppor- when it could be the opportunity to, and potential to encourage, strengthen, challenge, or teach someone or bring them to Christ. We see how much God used the small, insignificant things to influence Spurgeon greatly. We may be faithful in the small things in our daily life. Do not be like the neglectful servant who did not make use of his one talent, thinking it was too much, too little to use. It was the faithful, being faithful in the little things that used, that impacted Spurgeon greatly. Three, the gospel was the center of Spurgeon's life. He was passionate about preaching the gospel and spreading it through preaching, tra- through preaching tracts, sermons, and other means. Christ and the gospel was the center of his whole ministry. He was not ashamed of the gospel because he realized it was the power of Christ. He wanted others to experience the same peace and joy in Christ that he had felt. He said, I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus Christ than pick all the mysteries of the divine word. Later, he also said, I would rather be the means of saving a soul from death than be the greatest orator on earth. I would rather be the, bring the poorest woman in the world to the feet of Jesus than I would be made Archbishop of Canterbury. I would sooner pluck one single brand from the burning than explain all mysteries. The soul going down into the pit is a more glorious achievement than to be crowned in the arena of theological, theological controversy. To have faithfully unveiled the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ will be, in the final judgment, unaccounted worthier service than to have solved the problems of the religious sphinx, or to have cut the Gordian knot of apocalyptic difficulty. One of my happiest thoughts is that, when I die, it shall be my privilege to enter the rest into the bosom of Christ, and I know that I shall not enjoy my heaven alone. Thousands have already entered there who have been drawn to Christ under my ministry. Oh, what bliss it will be to fly to heaven and to have a multitude of converts before and behind. This was really challenging to me as it is so often easy to pass by people along the roads, along people we, we encounter every day and not share the gospel with them. One example I always think of in regard to evangelism is the Titanic. You had a great disaster where thousands of people were killed. A small amount of them were... Y'all could see that. A small number of them were saved in lifeboats, and there was room for many more. Only one of those boats went back to rescue others. The question is, are we going to be those people who went back in the lifeboats to bring others and save others with us? Spurgeon decided by God's grace that he would go back. The final thing that I would like to talk about is Spurgeon's dedication to God's truth and his willingness to stand firm against falsehood. He stood in the Bible and would not back down. He took his opinions directly from Scripture and stood strong in those. We need to be willing tools and ready to be used by a creator for whatever he may have for us and defend the truth of the Bible. He, would, he with the disciples said, I must obey God and his truth and not men. I hope this talk has helped you to see a small glimpse of Spurgeon and to learn about his life. I hope it has encouraged you and challenged you in your life with in your walk with the Lord. We have seen that he did not rest on the, on, in the faith of his parents, but sought Christ for himself until his soul was secure. He was, 
he was faithful in bringing people to Christ and telling them about the good news. We see that it was the small things and little things in life that had a great impact on Spurgeon. And fourth, that he stood and defended the truth of the Bible. I don't think it would be quite appropriate to finish this talk without a call for the gospel. So I'd like to read a section of one of Spurgeon's sermons. Remember, sinner, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not to your hope, but to Christ, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. And if you do that, 10,000 devils cannot throw you down. There is one thing which we all too much confuse in our preaching, namely the great truth that it is not prayer, it is not faith, it is not our doings, it is not our feelings upon which we must trust, but upon Christ and on Christ alone. We are apt to think that we are not in the right state, that we do not feel enough, instead of remembering that our business is not with self but with Christ. Let me beseech you, look only to Christ. Never expect deliverance from yourself, from ministers, or from any means of any kind apart from Christ. Keep your eyes simply on him. Let his death, his agonies, his groans, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon your mind. When you wake in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look for him. Thank you.